you're listening to the Blue Box podcast. I can't do this. I can't do this. Lee, Simon, they've gone. They went out last week. They went out. They've gone. Oh no, hang on. They're sitting right here. Uh, And for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. I'm JR. <laughs> I'm Lee. I'm Simon. <laughs> and we've just watched Night Terrors. Ooh. And did we enjoy it? Lee, how long is it since you've seen Nine Terrors and did you enjoy it? Two years ago. And I actually did enjoy it this time round. Did you not enjoy it last time round? No, I wasn't a big fan. First time round I didn't enjoy it at all. In fact, I found it quite weak. Um, lots of really, really brilliant ideas, but I just, it just didn't come together enough for me. I wanted it to be a bit more scary, a little bit more tense, and the pace was a bit strange at the end. And it was all about love again, and I just got a bit kind of, oh, okay, here we go. Well, okay, that's an interesting point. Mm. You said it's all about love again. Well, the love of a, the love of a, with a parent and a child is a strong thing, and it's very important, and it's, it's good in Doctor Who to have that. So I think it's a really good... Um, thing to tackle and you know it's, it's tackling like adoption and stuff like that as well so it's got issues in there but um, oh I don't know it's all a little I mean the end, the end piece if we skip right to the end where the dad's running down the stairs ready to give the kid a hug that wasn't very well edited no that's probably why it lacked emotional depth and truth to me but actually I was really impressed with the dad acting and the son acting, which I thought was terrible the first time around. I obviously was not looking hard enough. Oh, I loved the dad and the son the first time around. Simon, did you? How long since you've seen it? And probably haven't watched it properly since it was on. Since we watched it to to review it, I think. We didn't start the reviews until after this, didn't we? No, series seven. We oh, yeah, started with Asylum of the Darlings. Okay, so yeah, not since... Trans- That's why we've then. gone back to review it now, you mm. dolt. Oh, well. It's <laughs> just... Good word. I can't really remember na- my name, let alone what episodes I've watched. Um, no, I don't think I've watched it properly since it was on transmission. But pleasantly surprised, again. Yet again, I thought it was great. It's that, it's that whole thing of preempting things and having, you know, expectations. Mm. Mark Gatiss's name... Attached to it, you know, I mean, not not cynical, but you know, it's like, oh, is it going to be a good one? Is it going to be a not so good one? And uh, yeah, no. Um, second watch, much the same reactions as Lee, and I just thought it was a classic Doctor Who story, classic Doctor Who episode, template to a degree, but it's one of those ideas where you think, why have they never done that before? I've read short stories. Very much in that, but mm-hmm. it's never been done in the series like that. Actually, tackling how many you know how many children watch Doctor Who and then they have nightmares in their in their bedroom. You know, it's never been tackled before, not head on anyway. Yeah, and that really did. Mm. Okay, bad stuff out of the way first. Well, 
cinematography was amazing. Yes. Is that, is that the bad stuff, is it? <laughs> no, but... Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, well, I'm heading towards that. Cinematography was amazing. The only... As far as the pictures and the editing and the pacing and the music even is concerned, the only bit that doesn't really work is the bit where he's running down the stairs at the end, right? Mm-hmm. Apart from that, the the photography, the editing, the music, the, the whole sound ambiance, because there's a lot to do with sound in there, as he says, the stuff with the lift, and the child's voices, the doll's voices. It's all done really well. Mm. We'll talk in a minute about whether it works on another level. The only, my only problem with the way it looks is, and I suppose this is just something that you can't really do anything about it, but that inside the doll's house, mm. in HD, that's not a doll's house. And there's not really a lot you can do with it. National Trust House, isn't it? <laughs> Again, it's one of those things that look good on paper. Yeah, the, the dad defends them with an oversized pair of scissors. And it's like, yeah, that looks great on paper and it's all very Planet of the Giants, but it didn't really work, did it? I thought that was okay because it was supposed to be a pair of children's scissors, right? Mm. Which are plastic with metal blades. Mm, okay. And they're kind of funny looking anyway. So I thought that was okay. Mm. And the stuff with the candles, with the little things inside, was yeah. just about all right. That was but, all right. The lantern, apart from the fact where she said, oh, there's a switch under here. And you think, yeah, the switch, the would, switch be would be about two inch square, wouldn't it? Yeah. But I, I thought that he kind of created this world. So it's not actually inside the doll's house physically. Oh, no, 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 he's put them inside the dolls. He's put yes. them in there, but I, yeah. I would have thought that it was a instead of a miniaturization thing, it's a bit more of a kind of psychic thing. Like in Fear Her? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, but I don't think it is. I don't think that's what it's supposed to be. I think it is literally supposed to be just the doll's house. He's putting people in the doll's house. Yeah. It's just it's funny for the first 20 minutes, one of the th- things I thought to myself, oh, I know what I'll say in the podcast, is the um, the audio, the soundtrack is was great for the first sort of 20 minutes half an hour then like you say when the sooner the children's voices came in it started <coughs> it was a bit over the top there was too much of it i thought it was done very well do you yeah i, I think it was make, done very well but when the, the problem is not how it was done but that there was too much of it yeah think? i couldn't quite make the connection between the children's voices and the dolls you know in as much as the dolls were making the, the noise yeah, I suppose well, that was going to be it's difficult. It's another psychic it? thing, isn't it? Because it's all about the you know psychicness. Uh, so it's probably in their heads or whatever. So you don't need them to actually move their lips and things like that. No, I wasn't thinking anything as obvious as that. It just yeah. didn't <clears> quite. I tell. I think I mentioned it as we were watching it that the children's voices, the the, the creepiness of children laughing in anything slightly sinister, like in a film or whatever, is you know you don't waste that because it's it's such a good little piece of fear that you can instill in people as they're watching a film and, I, and, and like yourself Simon I think after a while I think they're just overdoing this if you had the odd creepy laugh now and again mm. that would be enough and the nursery rhyme just went on and on almost to the point where I don't know I may be wrong but it felt like they were using the same sections of laughter oh it was oh for yeah, sure yeah, so probably, it was, it was, yeah. there was a repetition yeah. thing but, I mean, that, if you're that's rep- quite good though it's good to re- then it should repeat. be really repetitive oh, I see what you mean yeah it was somewhere in between, and it didn't it sell was. one thing or the other. Yeah, so again, I think it was it was kind of creepiness by numbers. Mm. Um, Do you know what it reminded me of? I've seen so many films, and you know, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think, oh, this, that's a cliche, that's a cliche. But as a Doctor Who episode... Yeah, if you're going to transpose that into Doctor Who, 
then you have to make something of it. Yeah. And I don't think they quite made something of it. This should have been... See, this reminded me so much of Amy's Choice. In that brilliant central conceit. But to me, neither this nor that really sold you that conceit. No. Amy's Choice... I think the Dream Lord would have been far scarier if he hadn't turned up at the start and said, right, this is what's happening. Mm. If the Dream Lord had just turned up, you know, as a butcher and, uh, you know, as a funeral as director the, as or the whatever. As kept appearing. Yeah, yeah as yeah. the guy who kept appearing mm. in all different guises and they're all thinking, what the hell's going on here? Yeah. But because he turns up at the start and says, right, there are two realities, which one is real? You kind of already know. Mm. that the one where she's pregnant at the start's not the real one because, you know, you've not seen anything to suggest that they've been split up for five years and she'd be pregnant. So you know that one's not real. So you know the other one's not real because it's too obvious that the other one's a real one. So you know they're both not real. But you didn't get the, you didn't get it straight away with this one. There was a mystery to it. It's a quite no, a when thin I, one. No, when I watched this the first time, I got it straight away. That what? That they were in the dolls, the dolls' house in the cupboard. Oh yeah, I mean that was that instant, wasn't it? Mm. That's what I'm saying. Is that if you were, oh I see. If yeah. you t- in order to sell the conceit, you have to find a way to put them in the dolls' house without making it obvious that that's what you've done. Because right at the start, the mother before it even kicks off, the mother says, "Put the bad things in the cupboard." Hmm. So you know, you know, as soon as Amy and Rory turn up that they're in a doll's house, because one of the first things they find is the, well, the wooden saucepan. Yeah. And you know the doll's house must be in the cupboard, because the kid's putting the bad things in the cupboard, and we already know the kid's got a problem with the lift, and that's where they are. And there's also that very odd, clumsy line from Rory about, oh, I bet we've been sent into the past while he's up there in EastEnders land. Mm. It's kind of, it's funny, but at the same time, it's instantly saying that, okay, you're not in the past then. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> like, like the Dream thinking. Lord. Yeah. Like the Dream Lord Making saying... Making really obvious. Yeah. If one of these things is real and the other one's not real, it's like, okay, as soon <laughs> as you spell it out, you know it's not what it is. Like the Doctor at the start of Robot of Sherwood, when he's trying to work out what the mm. merry men are, you know every time he says something, that yeah. that's not going to be gonna what be it a, is. should have been a miniscope. Miniscope would have been so good. Hmm. <laughs> but... So so that was my, when I first saw this episode, that was my fundamental problem with it, was that it was too obvious. Mm. And that what it really needed, like I, I've said about Amy's choice, what it really needed is for them to just be in the village and keep seeing the Dream Lord and have to work out why they keep seeing the same person. In this, the only way I think I could have made, they could have made this story work is to have the TARDIS land in the doll's house and then for them all to be in the doll's house and have to work out what's going on from there. But of course that doesn't work because then you don't get the scenes with the Doctor and the kid, right? Mm. But do you know what I mean? If the sound of the TARDIS landing had frightened the kid, he could have put that sound and the TARDIS landing into the doll's house and they could have arrived there. Then you could have perhaps found some way to get the Doctor out of the doll's house, but leaving Amy and Rory behind, and then the Doctor could have carried on with the kid, rather than having all that investigation stuff at the start. Hell, why aren't you writing for this series? No, but the way the, <laughs> way, the, idea, the, the, way the story works, 
everything about it, the performances, the dialogue, the photography, the music, the atmosphere, the ambiance, the, what they did with that block of flats to make it look so amazing, it's all brilliant. But the fundamental thing at the heart of it is that the, the story itself isn't working Mm. in the way it's supposed to be a mystery and it's not working as a mystery no it doesn't work as a mystery so every time you've got like the doctor saying we need to open the cupboard no we can't open the cupboard yes we've got to open the cupboard no but we, if we open the cupboard the monsters will get out and all this kind of stuff all through all those scenes you're thinking yeah great that bit's really funny that bit's quite scary and so on and so forth but what you're not actually thinking is Oh, what will happen when they open the cupboard? Because you know that what will happen when they open the cupboard is mm. it'll all end up in the Donald's house. Mm. There are a lot of lot of Doctor Who's now filmed in houses, isn't it? We got the Lodger, Fear Her, the Spoonheads one, the Bells of Saint John, and then you get the scariest one, which is the um, uh, the the gas mask kid knocking at the door. Are you my mummy? I mean, how, that is the scariest thing we've seen. A child. In a gas mask, knocking on the door of a normal house, I guess, nine quarters. I think it was you saying, are you my mummy? Well, this scary. is... But it is scary. It's that scary. So how come that can be really terrifying for adults and children, whereas you sit and watch Night Terrors, and it kind of washes over you. Washes over me, anyway. I mean, I enjoyed it, but it doesn't put any fear into me, nor did it put any fear into my son. The only bit that made their hair stand up on the back of my neck yeah. was when the dad works out what he needs to do in order to save the day. Oh, Really? Yeah, that worked for me really well. Okay. Why, what worked for you? I was, th- I was thinking about the actual transformation. Oh, no, that was nice, but it wasn't a hairs on the back of the neck moment. Oh, really? Yeah, oh, quite... was it? Yeah. I mean, it transformed. Oh, it was nasty, yeah. It was nasty. I mean, it was, the it's first, not what I was expecting. The and first it's the same one... as the gas mask coming out of, you know, the doctor's yeah, face, yeah. that kind of thing. It's like, ooh, really? Oh, no, it, w- it was really effective. Mm. The first one was the... i tell you one really great thing about the episode... The first one was the uh, landlord, right? Yeah. And from that point on, because I've not watched this since transmission, from that point on, I'm thinking it's going to be a scene in a minute where the doctor sorts it out so that he doesn't have to pay the rent. And there never was. When the doctor leaves at the end of... Well, no, that's great. When the doctor leaves at the end of the story, he hasn't fixed the other things. He's just fixed the main problem. Mm. And he's left the status quo of everything else as it was when he arrived. So it didn't pander to the audience in that respect. Mm. I thought that was quite, not brave, but they must have thought, oh, should we do the scene where the Doctor saves the day in terms of the rent as well? And they must have decided not to do it. And I think that's not brave necessarily, but it was an obvious thing to do, and I think it was a deliberate choice not to do it. But there's this family going through a turmoil, they're going through a time with, with their son, which is bringing them down. And you can tell that he's just really depressed, that bloke. I mean, one of the reasons and that's probably yeah, he hasn't wise. got a job is because obviously he's maybe looking after his son. A bit exactly. Mm. Should be going to school now, that, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, he leaves them with this huge ball of positivity, which you think, okay, with this guy, I might go and get a job. He'll, exactly, he'll yeah. He'll be happy. He didn't need to sort out the rent at all. No, he didn't. But it's kind of the kind of thing you'd expect to happen in a story like this, really. Yeah. I tell you what they should have done though that he should have the dog should have gone with the landlord and become a peg dog. That would have been scary. <laughs> no, honestly, I honestly Wait, think ten kids would have found that a bit that freaky. Yeah, yeah. The, the dog like, changed as well. Uh, the dog with the human head in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the seventies one. Oh my yeah. god, yeah, that's so creepy. <laughs>
about that. I tell you what, the Peg Doll um, character options toy is fantastic. They did of the um, soldier. And they were going to do an Amy one as well, and they never did. That would have been great. I remember you saying that at the time how good they were. Oh, yeah. But do you think our soldiers put in there as a bit of a, an homage to, to the Mind Robber? To the Mind Robber, yeah. I possibly. But actually, I seem to recall when the episode was coming up and people had seen pictures of the Peg Doll soldier, that people were saying, oh, is this some kind of sequel to the Mind Robber or something? <laughs> I seem to remember. Well, it's in the same kind of universe, isn't it? It's the surreal... Doctor Who episode that we normally get once in every series. Well, I suppose so. There are other brilliant, brilliant things about the episode. And I think, well, as parents all, the bit at the end where fatherly love saves the day, Lee's shaking his head. Now, I'm shaking my head because I didn't like it up to the point where I, that shot where the boy's crying, he goes, Daddy! And it got me right here. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no. And I thought, oh, you swines. Yeah. <laughs> the kid was great. Really good. Best yeah. thing in it, I thought. And and going back to the audio, his breathing, the use of his breathing at the start was amazing. Mm. Really good. And his blinking, actually, officially, his, his little ticks and things he does. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was I was guilty of, of saying out loud before we started watching this that I didn't think the dad and the son were particularly good actors or that I didn't enjoy their acting the first time around. I think I must have got that confused with somebody else, uh, some other... Nightmare in Silver. <coughs> Might be that. Um, no, he was he was actually really, really good. Mm. The kid. Mm. And the yes, dad he was. actually was, was very convincing as well. Daniel Mays. He's a great actor. Yeah. He normally does really sort of hard-bitten stuff. And I know this is different for him, and this he was really good. Yeah. I know what it was, it was the Idiot, Idiot's Lantern. That's what was getting me, the father and that, I think it was... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, this was fantastic. It was. But the ending really works. The way people will say, oh, it's a love saves a day ending. But actually, the way it's explained by the Doctor is perfectly logical. Mm. And the way it's done on screen, apart from that naff bit where he runs down the stairs, works brilliantly. And the hair stood, did stand up on the back of my neck as soon as... Mm. As soon as you see in the dad's face that he's realised what he's got to do, from then to the moment where he hugs the son and says, I can't remember what the line is, but he says, I am your father and I won't ever send you away or whatever. Mm. I thought that worked brilliantly well. It was guilty, though, of, of having that info dump at the end, that kind of thing where the Doctor has to say everything in three seconds flat. Yeah, but Matt Smith does that so well. He does it so well, but it's like, oh, I know what he is. He's a tenser. ba 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 And in three minutes, you get the entire story all wrapped up in a nutshell. Yeah, but and that's it... the thing with the 45-minute episode. you either got to do it or else you kind yeah. of lose something somewhere else. You drop it through. <laughs> but anyway, that's moaning, isn't it? I actually really well, no, it. because... You do find out, like, 15 minutes before that, that the kid's an alien, right? No. No, you suspect it, don't you? Because he says, what are you, George, or who are you? Yes, yeah, and then he says other. to the dad, he's an alien. Oh, right. He says that way before the you're a tenser thing. I'm sure of it. Uh-huh. But then there's this thing about the magpie adapting, you know, its surroundings. It's, it's basically the info dump about its species. Yeah, but then that's kind of the given... I mean, that happens 
in all Doctor Who, at any point when they find out what the alien is, they're going to have to explain it to the people who don't know what the alien is, what the alien is. I mean, even in a Dalek story or a Cyberman story, you'll have that kind of thing somewhere along the line, generally. And, yeah, you kind of do. It's just kind of part and parcel. Look at how they did it in Aliens of London with the Slitheen. I thought that that was one of the parts of Aliens of London that didn't work. The Slithy, the oh, what could it possibly be? Let's narrow it down. Because either the Doctor would know or he wouldn't. And narrowing I it... I quite liked that scene, actually, I think, because it was, it was showing us a different type of... Uh, it showing us the Doctor's way of narrowing things down in a tense situation. Because you imagine this guy having billions of information up in his head and he's got to try and work it out. It's the same with David Tennant when he rubs his head and he goes, what am I missing, what am I missing? And two things. Yeah, oh, he's well, no, around, Matt Smith did that in here with the well. photographs. It's the, it's the mm. doctory way mm. of doing things nowadays. And even, yeah, like, but in... Apparently, shut up, shut up, shut up, you know. Yeah, but in Aliens of London, it's right. What do we know about these creatures? Uh, don't like vinegar, etc., etc. And he narrows it down like that. And the way he narrows it down like that, I just don't think it's believable because he'd, he'd know instantly. Couldn't do a Rubik's Cube though, could he? I know, that's disappointing. Oh, Matt Smith and this. Mm. Yeah, has the Doctor ever done a Rubik's Cube before? I think he I'm has. I'm sure he has. Doesn't yeah. he solve it while he's talking to somebody by accident? Uh, Wasn't in... that the Tom Baker? <laughs> no, it wouldn't be Tom Baker. It'd be new series. <laughs> they wouldn't have things Tom like Ruby. They wouldn't it's have a things time like time travel show, Jim. Maybe it's one of those thought processes. No, Ruby's Cube was around at the time of Tom <laughs> Baker, but in Tom Baker, they were very careful not to put any. Mm, that's true. So it wouldn't have been then. It would have been in the new series. Pop culture. It's something that Doctor Who very much avoided mm. during large parts of its. Until we got into the Virgin novels. Hmm. It went in the void altogether. In the 60s and early 70s, you had pop culture references every now and again. Evil of the Daleks and Spearhead from Space have got pop songs in them. And that's, Hmm. you know, as several of the stories do as well, I think. Of course, Big Brother. Oh, yeah, coming into the new series, obviously, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just think it's one of those decisions I think you'd probably think about, right, would the Doctor do a Rubik's Cube while he was talking to someone? And then you sort of think, well, does that make it look like he's being nonchalant about the problem that he's trying to solve? So it's a tricky one, isn't it? Well, also, this is the 11th Doctor who's already been through the Lodger and doesn't know anything about life on Earth, mm. <laughs> sort of being a normal person, who does who does do things by accident, like being a brilliant footballer. So I guess you could put being able to do a Rubik's Cube, you know, without even thinking about it, down to the same thing as being able to play football without even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Or else you can just use it to show something else about the Doctor, that for once the problem is such that you can't even do the Rubik's Cube offhand. Mm. Just like a man having to think of one thing, about one thing every time. I said, yeah, I mean, the obvious thing to go for would be that he would be just talking to someone and maybe you'd be hearing this click, 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 and then he just does it. And you just yeah. think, yeah, it's, it's kind of... Yeah, best put that one in the wardrobe. A little bit corny. See that in the wardrobe? Yeah. Yeah, well, that was the point. The reason he had the Rubik's Cube, I mean, they could have had anything, but he needed to have something that he needed to find somewhere to put so they could bring the cupboard into it. Mm. And if he... Finishes the Rubik's Cube, 
he doesn't want to get it out of sight because he'll be proud of the fact that he's finished it because he's a doctor and he loves finishing things. And showing off. So it's because he can't finish it that he says, oh, it must be broken, get rid of it, get it out of my sight, put it in that cupboard. Yeah, I hate those things. Oh, best tidy away, eh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, because he throws it on the floor first, doesn't he? Um, the reason I brought up the ending, though, is because... Apart from the fact that I think it works logically, the one thing about it that you could have a problem with is, okay, saying love saves the day and feeling the emotion, how does that affect the physical reality of it? And because the kid is putting the things in the doll's house himself, he's obviously having some kind of telepsychic influence over them, you can believe that the kid can save the day, but in order... To show that on screen, you need to preempt it somehow. You need to foreshadow it. And if you go right back to the start of the episode, when the kid's scared and he's saying, somebody come and help me with the monsters, and that arrives on the Doctor's psychic paper, that's the kid showing enough telepsychic powers so that by the end of the 45 minutes, when he does it again, you're not thinking, where the hell did that come from out mm. of nowhere? You're actually... You know, the, the preemption of it should be enough to say, right, okay, that's plausible. Mm. Yeah, and he's very powerful. It's funny, I'm more comfortable with this ending than, than I am with the closing time ending. Same thing. Yeah. Um, in as much as the ending of this, you know, that love saves the day, it's all part and parcel of the problem. The problem's been there from the start of the episode. The whole reason why all this is happening is because the child is feeling insecure. Therefore, the love is what was needed to make him feel secure again for these effects to stop. Whereas in closing time, it's it's just a kind of a thing plucked out of the air. That, oh, you don't like closing cycle? time because you like Cybermen and you don't think that's right. But, it, but, just... but Craig <laughs> even said... What's his name? Is it Craig? Craig, yeah. 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 Says, you know, oh... Is it, it's love saving. Yeah, she says it, doesn't he? He says, I saved the day with love. With and the love. doctor says, well, no, actually you didn't. What happened was this. And he, and he starts saying what happened. And then he says, and then he says no, <laughs> let's just leave it at love saved the day. Yeah, so mm. it's, it's spelt out for you so it, in a comedy kind of way. But the same happens the thing again about... with, with the doctor dances as well. Same, same deal. The love saves the day there too, doesn't it? Basically, yeah. Because in the doctor dances, you've got the mother who is a powerful enough presence in the kid's life that instead of the nanobots, nanogenes, whatever they're called, mm. turning the mother into a replica of the kid, they realise what's going on and turn the kid back mm. to the way it should be. Because none of that really makes sense. It's not real. <clears throat> <laughs> it's brilliant, <laughs> but it's, it's Stephen Moffat logic. Yeah, yeah so it does make a, a certain genetic sense, though, doesn't it? If these if these things are clever enough to reshape somebody's body, they'd be clever enough to work out that. No, oh, hang on. Yeah, this but is if they're the clever chain. enough to reshape people's bodies, they should have been clever enough to work out at the start that that kid was dead, and once they once they've gone further out into the population and realised that he's the only one like that. Instead of changing everybody else to be like him, they should have changed him back to be like everybody else. Mm. It doesn't make any sense. But it's brilliant. It's kind of Stephen Moffat logic. Mm. People say fairy tale logic. It's not really fairy tale logic. It's a different kind of logic. It's kind of a 
fairy science. <laughs> I suppose <laughs> trademark JR South or fairy science. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of a Stephen Moffat hovers in this amazing middle ground where everything that happens in his stories is plausible within the logic of the story. Yeah. But if you yeah. try and transpose it onto the logic of the wider world, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Everything from the weeping angels to this, to closing time, to the empty child, everything, silence in the library, everything, you name it. But like in The Big Bang, there's that bit at the end of The Big Bang where, I mean, The Big Bang is basically clap your hands three times and click your heels together and the doctor will come back. Mm. Except it's got that central conceit that if you you can remember that the Doctor existed, if it doesn't matter that he's been wiped out of time, because if you can remember he existed, mm. he must have existed. And therefore, he can come back, because there's no reason then for him to continue not existing. The, the universe, yeah, there's a, there's a gap in the universe that needs <clears> to fill that gap. So it's not fairy yeah. tale, because in a fairy tale, the logic is entirely without scientific plausibility, but it's not entirely scientifically plausible. It hovers somewhere in between. And all of Stephen Moffat's stories do that. And not all of the ones that other people have written for him, but quite a few of them do exactly the same thing as well. And coming back to closing time, mm-hmm. what you've got to do, right, with a, with a story from the Stephen Moffat period, if you, you're either on board with it or you're not on board with it, and if you're not on board with it, you'll see the holes. But the holes aren't really holes, because like I say, the explanation in the Big Bang is that if you can remember the Doctor existed, he must have existed, right? So it's not a hole. It's not complete fantasy. It's hovering in that middle ground. If you're on board with it, you can find the plausible, rational explanations. They're there in closing time. Mm. The Cybermen are... One of the things that people have had a problem with that is... He is emotional, mm. and then all the other Cybermen blow up. Mm. But they're using him to be the Cyber leader. And they're weak. They're all weakened. So they're all basically plugged into the machinery that he's plugged into. So when he has the emotional reaction, what he does is feeds back the... For want of a better explanation, the electricity that's flowing into the suit that he's wearing gets fed back into the machine and fed back into the other Cybermen, a feedback loop that Mm. blows them up. It's Monsters, Inc. Yeah, so if you've got... The emotional chip. Emotional inhibitor. Well, no, it's not not actually got anything to do with emotions. It's got to do with him sending waves of power back into the machinery and the machinery not being able to take it. Mm. Which is fine, I had no problem with that. And with the Cybermen being plugged into it essentially because mm. at that point there was only about five or six Cybermen anyway and they're working on <clears throat> you know a weakened status so mm. it does make sense mm. and the fact that it's the fact that it and this is true of Night Terrors as well the fact that it needs to be an extreme emotional reaction in order to be able to do that is in my mind, plausible, and that's what the story's been about. If the story's about... This is why I think Closing Time is the best Cyberman story, uh, you know, far from the worst, Mm. because for once, 
the only time I think it's ever happened in the series, it is actually an ending that has to do with what the Cybermen are. Mm. Mm. In all the other stories, they're robots and they get blown up at the end. Earthshot, blow them up. Moonbase, send them off into space. Tomb of the Cybermen, lock them back up again. I don't know, Attack of the Cybermen, blow them up. Revenge of the Cybermen, blow them up. Tenth Planet, blow them up. It's like, how many times can you blow the Cybermen up? Nightmare in Silver, blow them up. It's boring. They're robots who get blown up at the end. Mm. Brilliant. This mm. is Doctor Who. Why is Doctor Who doing something as bland as that? And here you've got, in closing time, them actually saying, right, this is a story about a guy called Craig. And the first time we see Craig, he's timid of his emotions. And it's all about him and this girl. And the sci-fi story that's going on in the background is kind of secondary to this. Mm. Very secondary at that point. Yeah. And then he gets the girl against all the odds. The girl he never, ever thought he'd get. Against all the odds, he gets her. And in the follow-up story, they've had a baby. What more extreme expression of his joy, his emotional reaction at getting the girl can there possibly be than a baby? Mm, mm. And so closing time, in spite of the fact that the baby's only really there at the start and at the end, closing time really is about Craig being a father against all the odds. Mm. And so when you get to the end of closing time, it's... Uh, to me, absolutely logical the way that story ends. Actually, as a parent, as a parent, mm. that's quite a nightmarish situation, isn't it? To think mm. that something could take <clears throat> away your connection with your child, yeah, God, and yeah. then to find out it's that yeah, terrifying. actually, no, it can't. It's so. the most terrifying thing ever. If you ever, if you ever lost a child, right? <laughs> mm. oh. Like like most of us have done, probably in a, in a crowded street or whatever, and then you find them again. The well of emotion inside is absolutely outrageous. You, it's like, you cannot explain that to anybody who does not have a child. It's impossible. So with this Craig thing, I, to, I mean, I know it's a little bit soppy at the end, but I totally believed it because I know emotion is a very powerful emotion. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. <laughs> a but very powerful yeah. force. It's a powerful force, yeah. Um, and here we're seeing, you see many times in sci-fi stories and all this kind of stuff, uh, and people will say telekinesis or whatever, or in something like poltergeist. I mean, the, the rational explanation for poltergeists is that teenagers are going through such emotional reactions that actually they're exerting a sort of telekinetic electronic force on, you know, things that are surrounding them and causing books to fall off shelves and stuff like this. Mm. You know, through, I don't know, vibrating the house or whatever because there's such an extreme chemical reaction going on inside their bodies and this is just you know closing time is just essentially we've gone way off topic here but not really closing time is just an extension of that really and then night terrors all the things we've just said about closing time and the sort of emotional thing that goes on at the end of there you've got it here but it's not from the parent it's from the child Mm. But the the fact that the parent is having the same thing is what triggers it in the child mm. so that the child can put everything back. <clears throat> I thought what was really exceptional about this episode is that this child's an alien, a cuckoo in the nest. Mm. But this man and this child have had eight years. And after eight years, especially as the child has inadvertently or subconsciously, whatever, put this... Um, <clears throat> What do they call it? The psychic force that makes him forget um, the, the perception filter. The perception filter mm. around the guy, so mm. he has no idea it's not really his kid. 
So he's all this eight years, he doesn't know it's basically an adopted kid. And I like the fact that the perception filter that uh, does um, make him forget and make him, you know, love the child or whatever, is the child doesn't actually know it's doing it. No, exactly. It's no, a really nice idea. It's that, brilliant. That it's a survival technique. Yeah, the child doesn't know he's adopted. The parent doesn't know the child's adopted. And when they find out, when the doctor points out in the photographs, and it's something, when you've got something that you've forgotten or hidden, whatever, it needs a trigger. Mm. And that's a, a great way to show the trigger. Mm. When, when the doctor triggers the realisation between the man and the child, the way they react to that is perfect. First, you would be like, oh my God, what the hell? You're telling us that after all these years, this bond we thought we had is not a real bond. And then, I mean, because it's a 45-minute episode, it's like two minutes later, it's like, no, hang on, we've got this bond. We've built this bond. Mm. Doesn't matter this kid's not mine. Mm. Doesn't matter this parent's not mine. We have this bond that we've built. And as a father, you'll both know. If you found out tomorrow, Lee, that your kids weren't actually your kids, would it make the blindest bit of difference? It makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? Emotionally, emotionally, you'd have a shock. But emotionally, it wouldn't actually make any difference, no, would it? No, of course it wouldn't. It no, it wouldn't. No. It, would, it would make a weird difference, wouldn't it, the way that you would look at them for a while. Um, and I'm sure that that's what would happen with this situation, that he'll be looking at him differently for mm. a long time. Mm. But like the doctor said, with this particular alien, you know, you can, you can, he can be anything you want him to be. So that's a great kind of gift that you've got a magpie alien child who, you know, if you want to make Bream up to be the best engineer in the world, he probably will be because he can adapt to his situations brilliantly. Um, yeah, I, mm, yeah it, it, his acting was really good, wasn't it? I can't stop thinking about how good that kid was. And how oh, yeah, yeah. You said something interesting about him being in the room being filmed. Yeah, yeah, there was a point, it was um, a scene with Matt Smith sat down and chatting to him. We all know how good Matt Smith is with children. He does make a connection. He's, he's possibly the best of all the doctors as far as connecting with children. Mm. Though I've seen some Capaldi where he's just yeah, yeah. he's just wonderful. But Matt Smith, I mean, absolutely gets down to their level and um, mm. charms the socks off them. But there's that scene where he's sat on the bed with him and he's chatting and he's showing his screwdriver what it does and all that sort of thing. And there's a moment you're just looking at the child and you suddenly think, the child doesn't actually appear to be acting at all. Doesn't even seem to be aware of the camera. Mm. And that is quite something else. Is that from the directing or do you think that it just genuinely is... I, I think possibly between the director to... and the actor. So who was the director for this one? Richard Clark. Richard Clark did Human Nature. Oh. Mm. This is very different, though. Mm. I, I wonder whether they just left the camera running and just let Matt Smith have a conversation with the stuff. child. And, yeah, yeah. Interesting to see. So they it? both became. Was there a confidential with this? There would have been. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to go back and have a look. Mm. I don't suppose there was time to do a lot of that kind of thing. But, you know, it's the kind of thing I suppose you could do fairly quickly. Matt Smith, is what you need to do. Kid, this is basically what you need to say. You two just work it out between you how you'll get it out. And we'll just point the cameras at you. And mm. There was some odd stuff going on with cameras. The bit when they arrive in the doll's house, there's a lot of cameras sweeping over staircases for no apparent reason. Mm. Mm. You know what I've been saying the last few weeks mm. about the way you use your camera should represent something about... And storytelling, yeah. Yeah, and the way the cameras are sweeping over staircases is like, 
is that actually supposed to represent the dolls coming at them? Didn't because it this... didn't seem to be, really. Didn't we have the same effect on the last episode we, we watched, where there seemed to be two sections of direction, where the outside footage seemed to be far... Oh, was it Tooth and Claw? Yeah. Where the outside footage seemed to be far more kind of articulate and interesting and all that sort of thing. Because there was definitely a difference between when they were filming in the council estate with all the flats. Yeah. It was just gorgeous, some of those shots. That I, made the, I sort of said, how the hell did they make a load of flats look so amazing? Yeah, but you, um, uh, yeah, go on. But then when they got inside, it, yeah, I thought the same. I thought that there was almost two styles of directing and almost two styles of writing. It, but Who's maybe that was the that, that might be the point. But just to go, go oh, back yeah, to the, yeah. the beauty of the the frame of the flats, mm. which it was, it was beautifully filmed. Um, you know, I don't know whether you got it, but I got it straight away that obviously that's supposed to represent a different type of doll's house. Oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. It's just like it's just one of those artistic. Obviously, you put it in there, hoping that people will get it or not get it. And if they oh, no, it so it sub- should be subliminal, yeah, I suppose. exactly, yeah. I but suppose, like you're inferring, maybe it was a, a consciously a completely different style of direction once they got inside, maybe to make it look more claustrophobic yeah. or something, I yeah, don't know. maybe. And there was that beautiful shot at the beginning of the uh, water reflection where the... Yeah, the where the TARDIS materialises, yeah. I mean, that, that was done for no other reason that you could just do it and it looked good. <laughs> inside the house, there's a lot of... Because in Doctor Who, since Moffat took over, there's been a lot more handheld, but they don't do it with that sort of deliberately shaky way that some American series do, which I find very distracting. Mm. It's supposed to... The, the thing about... Just to go off on a slight tangent, the thing about shaky handheld cameras is that they, the director, the producers, the cameramen, know that what you're watching is something fictional that they're recording in a studio and on sets with actors but they want you to believe in it so they want to give it a documentary feel so they use handheld and they shake the cameras around but what they don't appreciate is that a documentary filmmaker might be holding the camera in his hand but he's not shaking it about deliberately he's trying to keep the shaking down to an absolute minimum so when you deliberately put extra shake on it that doesn't sell you the fact that it's got a documentary realism. Mm. It takes you away from the fact that there's a I've, documentary realism. I watched realism. The Fourth Kind today, right, which I, I quite enjoyed, actually. A UFO film. and um, Recent film? Uh, about three or four years back. No, we won't do a review of it then. No, but very, it's, it's worth watching. It's, worth watching. it's a creepy, creepy film. But the interesting thing about it is they got the actor, Miller... Yovonovich, whatever her name is. Mila Yovonovich. That's it. Uh, to play the, this character, okay, who was um, in a documentary talking about her experiences, about this UFO thing, right? And they kind of played her acting on one side of the screen and they played the documentary footage on the other side, which is quite clever. And then it kind of switched between the fiction and the, the so-called fact, which I thought was great. But when it switched between the fiction and there was a two-hander, the, the two actors talking... They had that very thing that you're talking about, the shaky, shaky cam. documentary camera. Yeah. And it was so shaky that I was thinking, do you know what, if I was a documentary maker and my hand was shaking that much, you know, you would expect, you expect your pay at the end of the no. month, would you? Because mm. you look at some of the documentaries and they're, they are amazingly still, so I don't quite understand. And it was so obvious, it shook me out of the... It was the one thing I didn't like about the remake of Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, I mean, the I, fact that they put shaky idea, cam on the effects was brilliant. Yeah, 
but just too much of it. The space battles and things look great. It's almost like it's being filmed. Yeah, the sudden new, zooms, brilliant. But then, like the ridiculously uh, heavy-handed shake doing afterwards. that in Attack of the Clones, didn't they? They did those zoom-in shots, which were gorgeous, actually. Yeah, not bad. To be fair, yeah. yeah. But you, you know, you can overdo it, and that Battle of Star Galactica is as brilliant as it was. By the end of the series, you're kind of thinking, just stop it now. Just hold the thing. Anyway, to get back to the reason why I brought it up. What did you bring up? Inside the doll's house, there's ever so slightly more of that. And there's ever so slightly odd angles. Which um, mm. which aren't so odd that you're thinking he's deliberately going oblique here. Like uh, in... What was the one we watched two weeks ago? Vampires of Venice. Mm. There's a bit where he walks into the building and all of a sudden the camera's really low looking up at the building and he's in between to make the building imposing over him mm. to make it scary. There's nothing oblique like that and there's nothing so skewed that you're thinking, oh, they're deliberately trying to sell how scary this place is. Mm. But what you've got instead are just slightly skewed angles. The kind of slightly skewed angles you'd get, in fact, if you had a little handheld camera and you'd actually put your hand into a doll's house and were trying to get around the tiny corridors. Mm. I thought that was clever. Actually, mm. I didn't think about that because there were bits of it which I was thinking you could lower that down a bit to make it more effective in your filmmaking. <clears throat> Whereas it did feel a little bit um, not not thought out in the camera movements, but maybe that was the point. Apart from a great kind of shot from behind one of the peg dolls as they're walking up the stairs from this darkened room and then it creaks its head around. Mm. That was lovely. That was a really good shot. Actually, the, the first few so times you just get the peg dolls where they just the first one runs across the background and a door in the distance. But that wasn't <clears> a <throat> peg doll, was it? Because it yeah. had a normal sized head. No, it didn't. Didn't it? No, no it was a peg doll. The second hmm. one was. The yeah, no, the first like, one was peg was doll it? as well. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Sure. quite quick though. Which which I liked. Quite quick. I liked and it was quite that. a distance away, so you didn't quite get that. Yeah, large objects look smaller in the distance. Look. <laughs> Is that why you're still so far away? Wasn't that a terrible meatloaf song? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One shot, I absolutely photoshopped the whole thing. And it took me back to a comic strip. I may have have got this wrong, but there was a comic strip uh, ages ago in a run of Captain Britain. I've got a feeling it was written, was it Jamie Delano or Alan Moore, one of the two. It's drawn by Alan Davis, my favourite artist. And there's an episode called Tea and Sympathy where Captain Britain, the superhero, comes back to this girl's family and he sits down and has a cup of tea with them. And it's an episode of the comic strip. There's a, there's, there's a bit of action towards the end, but there's this lovely domestic moment. And I just remember some of the frames just being lovely, where it's just people making cups of tea and things mm-hmm. like that. And there's that gorgeous frame where the serving hatch almost becomes a frame in itself. So you've got the whole room and then this small action area on the mm-hmm. screen. Little section where everything's happening with the doctors flying around making a cup of tea, yeah, and and and, and they they repeat it. I think it's about halfway through the episode, and then they repeat it again when the mum comes home from work. This is kind there's of three lots of tea. There's tea at the beginning and the yeah. tardis. But it's just that there. particular shot where you just see the doorway into the kitchen, but yeah. all the action's happening in the serving in hatch. In the serving hatch, yeah, that's a great, great scene. Yeah. This is that's kind of what this episode is doing, isn't it? In fact, Matt Smith almost even says it at the start. There's that piece of dialogue where it says, I think, is it Rory who says, hang on, I thought this was going to be about history and planets. What are we doing here? And the Doctor says, it is about history and planets, and today 
we're doing domestic, whatever the dialogue is. Mm. It's about the scariest place in the universe. Oh, that's a gorgeous line. The scariest place in the universe, Charles' bedroom. Mm. So true and so representative of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. But I thought that whole bit, that whole section of dialogue was really representative of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. It's about history and planets. And Stephen Moffat is the writer who put historical sequences into stories set in outer space mm. and will put spaceships into stories set in history. You see it all the time in Stephen mm. Moffat's Doctor Who. He mashes it all up. It's absolutely wild. Mm. But what Stephen Moffat also does, because Stephen Moffat is the writer who has kind of domesticized Doctor Who to a certain Domesticated. Degree. No, because I didn't want to say domesticated because that's not what he's done. Right. Okay. So I've deliberately chosen a different way to say that word because mm. it's not quite that. No, I know. He hasn't you. turned it into he hasn't turned it into a soap opera, but what he's done is he's turned it into something where it's underpinned by the central characters and their relationships in a way that Doctor Who's never done before. The old series of Doctor Who, the old series of Doctor Who, apart from every now and again, um, scenes at the top and tail episodes where they set it into a defined part of the canon. But the old series of Doctor Who, most of the episodes you could watch out of sequence and not lose anything from. Uh, that changed with Russell T. Davis because in Russell T. Davis you are following the story of the companion. But with Russell T. Davis, it was kind of that you were following the story of the companion. Whereas with Stephen Moffat now, it's not that you're following the companion story, but you're following the relationship between all of the regulars. It's a story about all of them rather than being a story about one of them. Mm. Really, those first two years under Russell T. Davis was the story of Rose, right? And the Doctor, by and large, was the still point around which Rose was rotating. But now, it's not a Knight's Terrors. It's not the story of Amy and it's not the story of Rory and it's not the story of Amy and Rory but it's the story of Amy and Rory and the Doctor and that's what I mean when I say he's domesticized it what I mean is he's not turned it into a soap opera and he's not turned it into a domestic drama but what he's done is he's underpinned it with the thing that underpins a soap opera or underpins a domestic drama and he's telling wild 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 stories on top because he knows that if you're underpinning domestic relationship drama is strong enough, or not necessarily strong enough, but intriguing enough, you'll be prepared to accept any amount of wildness, history with spaceships over the top of it, because what gets you through is wanting to know if the relationship between Amy and Rory and the Doctor is going to be the same at the end of the episode as it was at the start of the episode. And that little bit of dialogue where Rory or Amy, whichever one says, isn't it about planets and history? And the Doctor says, yes, it's about planets and history, but also it's about... House calls. House calls. That is kind of a metaphor for the way Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is in toto, which is why you get all these scenes of them drinking tea in the TARDIS. <laughs> you didn't get... You didn't get... Uh, Rose and the Tenth Doctor drinking tea in the TARDIS, no matter how so property some of their plot lines were. No, that's right. And Amy and Roy obviously um, had a go in the TARDIS bedroom, didn't they? Well, we discussed that on here before. We have. The reason why it came to that. 
and how that whole story worked. Did you find it was a little bit like a comic strip, this one? It's mm. like a comic strip story. Mm. Like a Doctor yeah. Who Adventures or a Doctor Who magazine story. It would sit perfectly in that world. Well, I think the whole... I've said this before. I think the whole Stephen Moffat thing is to do comic strip stories and annual stories <laughs> and the slightly odd kind of... The kind of stuff... Not, I mean, not specifically the kind of things that you'd see in the sort of William Hartnell Doctor Who annuals in the early 60s, which had very little to do with the TV series, and were slightly mad stories. Psychedelic, weren't they? I've said many, many times, if you take a little story and then use the time to tell a story about the characters, that's a far better way to fill 45 minutes than to think of a 90-minute story across four episodes and try and squeeze it down into 45 Mm. Which is how I think the series was when it came back. Tooth and Claw used the 45 minutes really successfully. But New Earth, which told almost exactly the same story as Tooth and Claw, did it really badly. And I think Stephen Moffat, by Asylum of the Daleks, is a great example. It, they go to a place where there's Daleks and it turns out one of them thinks it's a human. But it's not. And that's it. That's the story boiled down into six seconds. But then around that, you tell the story of the character, of the girl who thinks she's still human when she's not. And you tell the story of Amy and Rory getting back together. And you tell the story of the Doctor coming back into their lives when obviously he's been away for a bit. And them coming into his life when obviously he's been missing them a bit. Mm. And all of a sudden, you fill 45 minutes with Asylum of the Daleks and it doesn't feel too long and it doesn't feel too short. Whereas if you'd... Another way to have done Asylum of the Daleks, instead of them being in the Dalek Parliament at the start and being sent down there, is that they land on the planet and have to find out what's going on for themselves, and that takes twice as long. And you try and boil that story into 45 minutes, and all of a sudden parts of it feel rushed. Mm. Okay, shall we Shall we give it a score? Mm. Yeah, all right then. Oh, this is uh, interesting. You're looking at me first, aren't you? No, well, no, I'm only looking at you because you're a larger presence in the room and I suddenly... <laughs> Physically. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why. I obviously I obviously um, lean to the right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking to you anymore. Well, except I don't. <laughs> Bloody election. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, let's not go into that, eh? Yeah, okay, then, Simon. <sighs> yes. A score. Do you know what? Um, as I was watching it, if it hadn't, I was thinking, God, if if this was just some of the things that were bugging me, some of the missteps with the sound, and it sounds really pernickety, I know, but yeah, but it, these it, things it could are on the verge of a nine, but I think it's going to have to be an eight and a half. Can I do an eight that's, half that's, point? Do, do an eight. Nine. I'll do an eight. I'll do an eight. It's not worthy of a nine. No. Yeah. But um, it could have been a nine. Yeah. I'm exactly the same. I have to. Say, I think when I first watched this, I gave it a seven for the magazine, but my opinion of it has definitely gone up considerably. But by the same token, like I said at the start of the podcast, I think there are a few fundamental problems with the story, the plot, mm. that again I couldn't go above an eight for it. No, if the boy had been there in the house with them. At the start, yeah. Also, if they just have, it's one of those weird things. Like I was saying about Amy's choice, is like they obviously made. There's this thing about storytelling where you look at something after the fact and you say, right, if they'd have done this and if they'd have done that, then it could have been completely different. But the thing is, when you sit down to 
make a story, when you're the writer or the producer on something like Doctor Who, you have that idea, the idea that Stephen Moffat and whoever had for Amy's choice, the idea that they had for this story, and that's the story you're making. And it's very easy afterwards to say, if they'd have done something differently, then it could have been a better story. But that's not the story they were telling. This is the story they were telling. The symbolism was there. The boy needed to be in the bedroom. So, again, for me, it's an eight, because it's not the story I would have wanted them to tell, but the story that they did tell, they did tell it exceptionally well. I wasn't entirely impressed the first time I saw this. I was thinking, I was hovering around the five out of ten mark when I first saw it. It was just like, this is very, very average. It's slightly better than the Idiot's Lantern. You know, I don't know. It was, it was. I wasn't quite sure about it at all. Second time of watching it, I, I think I disliked it even more. Actually, second time round, I don't quite know why. I was thinking that. I, it wasn't doing anything for me. I think it was the cliche thing. You know, it's like the paint by numbers horror type thing. This time round, weirdly enough, I kind of really enjoyed it. Maybe it's the Blu-ray. <laughs> Who knows? <clears throat> the actual. Yeah, I have to say, sitting there with you two just now watching this, I was absolutely loving it. Yeah, I was really, really loving it. I don't know whether I could throw it at an eight. I've got to say because there's still it's, there's still not enough creepiness in there for me. There's still that little bit at the end. Well, that bit at the end where he runs down the stairs, which is cheesy as anything. Yeah, that bit was... It is a lot better, so I mean, I'm up in at least two marks, I'd say seven. Okay, fair enough. Mm. Right, before we move on from Doctor Who, because I'll finish that RZ9 review from last week now, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Because I've watched the last second half of that movie now, and oh boy, do I have some things to say about it. But before we move on to that, we're going to do something unprecedented. Well, no... For me. Well, no, for all of us, because normally... When a new series is coming up, Simon and I will sit... This has become our thing now. Simon and I will sit down and do a preview episode for the new series because Lee doesn't like spoilers. So if Simon and I do it, we can talk about what's coming up as much as we like. And we will do that in two or three months, whenever, when we get towards August. But this week, for once, Lee has been made aware of a spoiler, in inverted commas, some, I mean, the BBC are always sending lots of information out because mm. they like to keep they like to keep Doctor Who in the public consciousness while it's off air. Fans are always thinking about it. That's one thing. That's fair enough. But the BBC mm. put something out like what they've put out this week, which is a week ago, as you'll be hearing this, but which was like a day ago as we're talking, to keep the people who don't go on the forums thinking about yeah. Doctor Who in the downtime. And the thing that they've put out this week actually seems to have got Lee a little bit excited. When I say excited, I don't mean necessarily excited for the story, but excited to have found out this thing, which is Lee. Which is Osgood's coming back. Not just that, but But Osgood is coming back, and she is a Zygon. Well, they didn't, we s- they didn't say she was a Zygon. They well, said Osgood's coming back in a story which features the Zygons. Yeah, okay. If that's the case, and it is Osgood, and not a Zygon, and the, the Osgood we saw destroyed by the Master was a Zygon, stop, <laughs> then I'm going to be well over the moon, because I really like Osgood. No, I think she's back as a Zygon. Yeah, that's what I think too. Do you know what? Do you know why I think she's back as a Zygon? Apart from the fact that that just makes completely logical sense, with given everything that we've seen. But I also think that... I think this is the kind of thing that some certain producers will do, is if they've got an actor who has been popular with the public, 
who's a good actor, who's not necessarily had a stellar career, let's say. Because, I mean, name anything else that the girl who plays Osgood's been in. Do you know what I'm saying? This is not a criticism in any way, but what I'm saying is she's come in, she's done a really good job for them, she's a popular character, she has been the kind of character that makes people watch the show or keep up with the show who wouldn't necessarily be all that fanatical about it. She's done good for the show in the same way as the show has done good for her, is what I'm saying. And if you like somebody, sometimes you'll throw them a bone. And when I say throwing them a bone, what I mean is they think she's a capable actress and they like the actress. So what they've said is, well, you've played this really nice character in a couple of episodes. Would you like to come back as a villain? And she probably said, oh, yes, please. Oh, we saw at the end of uh, Day of the Doctor, didn't we, the the fact that the Zygon handed back the puffer. Is that right? And it was mm. kind of like a bit of a wink and a nod, you know, don't tell anybody. So, in a way, I thought, oh, it's a bit of a slightly friendly Zygon moment here. So, to bring her back as a Zygon, that might be causing trouble. Or might be a good Zygon. Or might be a good This one. could be. Mm. Yeah. Mm. But either like way. The idea that, that, that gives the that's Zygon's That's been explored in, funny enough, in comic strip, hasn't it? A good Zygon. That was, wasn't there a... A strip, good, I don't know, a good Dalek, wasn't it? Oh, I can't remember now, but yeah, possibly. Well, there's been all sorts of good Cybermen and stuff. But I mean, we've, we've, you know, the Ice Warriors. I've always said this about that. You know, when you create a race, there's there's more than just a whole race of evilness. You've got to have personalities within it. Well, and this is my point. She might not be playing a villain, but she'll be playing a conflicted yeah. character, which sure. will give her a lot more to play with. And Presumably, she's great. But I, I like the actress. I mean, the actress, she's got a natural way about it. Okay, in Day of the Doctor, she had to have a little kind of tick about loving the Doctor like Lee Evans did, um, you know, wearing the scarf and that sort of thing and the little puff and all that. But actually, her she acting... she got question mark collars this time. <laughs> she... <laughs> <laughs> she's selling me a lot. Uh, but, um, yeah, no. And I Sorry, have I spoiled that for almost, you? No, not really. I wasn't at the end anyway. But I was just saying, her, her acting was natural and I really liked her acting. It was like... You know, if there was going to be a companion, and everybody has said it before, she would actually make quite a good... Because I just like the way she acts. It's very natural, her delivery. And also, obviously, she's in much the same as Catherine Tate. She She's a female... She's a comedian. Com- yeah, she's a comedian. Yeah. She's a very good comedian. Yeah. And But there isn't a trace of that in her performance. No. All that enables her to do is to kind of see that side of... Yeah. Human so behaviour. So any... you do get a, a fully rounded character. Yeah, imagine if, the, if for some reason if she survives. The Doctor has a Zygon character, which would be quite amusing in itself, wouldn't it, for a little while. Mm. Her comic beats would be perfect. She'd know what to do if it was needed. I don't know. One can love and hope. What's interesting... Did I say love? I meant hope. <laughs> What's interesting about this is that after Day of the Doctor, the one complaint that people had about it generally was that the Zygon storyline wasn't finished, you know, rounded off, spelled out. Well, it didn't need need to be. And it could have been left there. But obviously, having made those Zygon costumes, they were always going to come back for a Zygon story. And I think what's nice about this is rather than just use the costumes for an entirely new Zygon story, what they've done is said, well, why don't we use the fact that we didn't, you know, put a full stop on the Zygon story in Day of the Doctor, and presumably this story is going to relate back to that. 
in a way more closely probably than sequel stories in Doctor Who generally tend to do. But you can do that with something like Day of the Doctor because it's not like anybody isn't going to remember the events of Day of the Doctor a lot better than they remember, say, the events of Night Terrors that we've just seen. It'd be hard to do a sequel that followed Mm. Night Terrors that closely, but not so hard with something like Day of the Doctor. I'm just so glad that they are doing that because... I was one of those people that, that couldn't really close it. I thought, you know, if you're going to have the Zygons working with humans, you can't just leave it. You can't leave it. There's got to be something else in the future. So I'm kind of glad and hope that they do, you know, uh, make a big deal of this. I can't wait, actually. Looking forward to that one quite a lot. I didn't, see, I didn't see it as, as the end of the story. I, it didn't feel like it was unresolved to me. It just felt like, oh, there's another texture in this in this big Doctor Who world mm. where... They've, all of a sudden he's got these Zygons who think they're human for a period of time and, and that carries on and it bleeds into the rest of the thing. Just like, you know, Torchwood might find a, a weapon or something like that that just goes into a cupboard somewhere, you know. That's... Yeah. You normally find that those weapons come back at some point, mate. Yeah. Those those things are always stored away, but they're, they're so important or they're made a meal of that they come back. It's the old gun thing again, isn't it? Chekhov's gun. Yeah, Chekhov's gun. Yeah, but even well, I was going to just quick briefly going back to Night Terrors when they start saying about I might pop back when he hits puberty or something like that, and, and I immediately said, "Oh, I'd like to see that." Yeah, I think I said the story needs to be written. We both said it at the same time. Oh well, yeah. Lee, I, I seem to recall during series eight, at the end of every single episode when we did a podcast, you said, "Oh, that character's got to come back. Oh, that storyline's got to come back," every <laughs> single week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And none of them did. Yeah. So we went for the series. Series 11. Uh, District 9. We'll have to see whether we still got a BBC by that point. Mm. District 9. Well, District 9 is a story about humans and aliens trying to coexist, right? Mm. So, I mean, I'm not saying, oh, this is Doctor Who's District 9. But because District 9 was such a success... I'm thinking that Stephen Moffat or Peter Harness, the writer, or whoever, sat down after Day of the Doctor and said, you know where this is pointing? Mm. This is pointing to District 9. So I'm not saying... That would be really good, actually. Yeah, but I'm not saying that I think they'll do District 9, but I'm just saying maybe the uh, existence of District 9 just gave him a little nod to do this story. Bring back the Scarison. As for Mordrin Undead, I think that's something that Simon and I will bring up in our own podcast in a couple of months or so. Lee's looking at me quizzically now, and I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> right, what's about this R79 business? RZ9. Yeah. Well, last week I'd watched the first half of it, hadn't I? Yeah. And I said it was... No, I don't even really want to think about it, if I'm honest. I said it was... Like a sort of, it was a church thing, like a Christian thing. Lee's laughing. Is why? Why are you laughing? Let's get on with it. I want to hear what it's about. Well, how did it end? Are you uh, gonna? You're gonna lend it to me, aren't you? Are you gonna give it to me to watch? Yeah, I'll lend it to you. Uh, all right then. Spoil okay. it for me. Go on. I don't think it's gonna make any difference. Okay, I'm not gonna say. Well, the way the story works is that it is obviously the sort of. Christian right, trying to do a sort of slightly lefty type film, but putting themselves into the lefty type positions in order to say, right, we can do that. Because you wouldn't expect a Christian film to be guns and robots and spaceships and 
action and fighting and violence, would you? What, like the old Bible? Yeah, but you the wouldn't... The Old Testament's full of that, isn't it? Well, the aliens. No, but it is. But what I'm saying is you don't usually get that in Christian films. No, alright. So what I'm saying is, what they've done is, they've said, right, you like action films? We'll put ourselves in an action film, and you'll see that we can do action films too. But what's the reason why it left such a bad taste is because by the end of the film, I'm not going to say how the film ends, by the end of the film, what's become really apparent is the fact that... Well, last week when I was talking about it, and you're still laughing now, I can... Last week when we were talking about it, it seemed as if it was just a film that they transplanted themselves into. But by the end of the film, it has become apparent that they're asking you to feel sorry for them. And that leaves a really bad taste. And also, there's a... And what... One of the things about this film is that for the first half, it was... It it was a case of them giving the other side of the... The other side of the story enough airspace that you thought okay they're trying to be at least a little bit balanced here but at the end of the film it transpires that the only reason they were doing that was so that by the end of the film one of the characters can have a damascene conversion and pointing out just exactly how they feel about the other side of things Mm -hmm. so there is no balance in the film at all and Oh, God, I was throwing things at the telly during the final five minutes. <laughs> oh, you should film yourself. I'm Gogglebox watching these. We'd love to watch that. <laughs> but I do, I'm laughing quite a lot, not not just about the subject matter of the film, the fact that it's very clumsily done, but the fact is that you get these DVDs sent to you by Starburst, right? Mm-hmm. Is it? Is there somebody looking through these going, oh, let's send that one to JR? Oh, no, because I... <laughs> just about anybody writing for the magazine would have had the same reaction. Keep sending him the crap ones. Have you learned to forgive oh, no, them? No, but they send me good ones as well. I get a good balance. I had Frequencies the other week and Darkest oh. Day. They were excellent. Yeah, Frequencies looks pretty good. And I've had excellent ones in the past as well. You know, the point is... <clears throat> and this is not a, a religious thing... At all. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have Christian films. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have Christians doing films like this, as long as there's balance. The Mm. reason why this is so bad is because the people making the film come across as really hard, reactionary, right-wing Christians doing a Charlton Heston, basically, on it. Oh dear. Yeah. Well, any, any good film should leave room for the for the viewer to make their own mind up on what they're watching. If you're going to do something political in that way, mm. yeah, a good political film will have enough ambiguity. And this is why some of these films that have come out, uh, George Clooney did one a few years ago, and I can't remember what it was called, and everybody was raving about it, saying, oh, you've got to watch this film because, you know, the politics and all this kind of stuff. And I watched the film, and I got to the end of it, and I thought, no, you've only showed one side. You have to show enough of the other side that it is down to the viewer Mm. to make up their own mind about what you're saying. It's not for you to do it for them. And this film was one of those films where it didn't just do it for you, it rammed it down your throat with this Damascene conversion at the end. It's, oh, everything that was ambiguous 
or appeared to be ambiguous about this film was only a setup. So this character could turn around at the end and say, no, that's all bollocks. And this is what's right. Well, the, the, the one thing I really want to ask you is, was there any Kung Fu in it? And until next week, when we'll probably be watching Gridlock, I was JR. I was Lee. And I was Simon. And we'll speak again soon. Oh, before we go, breaking in here, uh, go to our Facebook page because the week after we do Gridlock, we're going to go back to the classic series and do a classic series story. And um, because we're going to watch it literally before we start recording, we haven't got time to do a four or six parter. So we're going to do a 50 minute story. On our Facebook page, we're going to give you a choice of The Rescue, The Sontaran Experiment, and The Awakening. And we're going to throw, throw Canine and Company in there for good measure. We want your votes. And uh, whichever one gets voted top, we'll watch that and do a podcast on it in oh, a two or three weeks' time. How cruel are our listeners? I know, I know how cruel they are, and I know where we're going with this. So I'll be surprised. Actually, yeah, they might be. They will listen been... to a whole podcast about... Ah, don't say they, what it they is they because you'll put the idea that. in there. Yeah, they might do. Yeah, but then maybe they'd like to hear us talking about the Sontaran experiment or the awakening or the rescue. <laughs> <laughs> and if they do choose K9 and Company, we'll probably do two podcasts and do the story that came second as well. Nicely done. Can we get, in, fact, <laughs> can we get Ian Levine on to talk about the theme music? No. No, okay.